We're going to look at Isaiah 53, 4 through 7. Yep, it works. Perfect. Don't put it in my eyes. That's right. That's weird. It doesn't work on the screen, huh? It works everywhere but the screen. We'll try. We'll, we'll try. Maybe it's just that slide. We'll be hopeful. Okay, Isaiah 53, 4 through 7. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Christ, his sacrifice for us. The fact that you laid on him the iniquity of us all brought about our redemption, our joy, our hope. And Lord, we pray that our time here this last hour would bring you glory and honor. And so we ask for your help now in Christ's name, amen. This is my favorite session to do, my favorite thing to teach, so um, it's good that it's at the end of the day, so we all have energy to kind of listen and finish out strong. But let me introduce you to a few folks here as we uh, get going. Sam's 25 years old, struggling with chronic depression. Sally is 35 years old. She's a nervous wreck. She's ruled by anxiety. Tom is 40 years old and is an angry man. Susan is 22 and thinks she has OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay, all these folks are from different genders, different backgrounds, different ages, and so on and so forth. Uh, they all have very different uh, problems that would, well, let me say this. They all seem to have very different problems that you would think would require very different approaches. They've all been trying to change for, for many years without much success, but they all sincerely want to change. But as I got to know each one of them individually, I found out that they all had the same basic problem and required the same basic approach, counseling approach. And, and that's because they all had the same heart problem. And so this is what we're going to be talking about here for the next few moments, moments and that is the biblical heart. Um, kind of asking the question, why do we do what we do? If we want to help people change, then we got to figure out that question. Why are they doing what they're doing? We talked earlier, the question up here in the panel discussion is, you know, that caricature of sometimes biblical counseling of just giving a verse. Well, sometimes the reason why there's that caricature is, is people haven't asked, well, why are they doing, you know, why can't they do what the Bible says? The Bible says this. Some people say, you know, well, the Bible says this. Why aren't you doing it? Uh, well, it might be other things going on in their heart that's keeping them from doing that as well. It's not just one, one issue. So, in this book called Contentment, Megan Hill said, why do we want what we want? Every day we make dozens of choices about what to watch, who to spend time with, where to spend our paychecks, when to eat dinner. 
One study estimates that we make over 200 choices a day simply about food. That's pretty crazy, huh? That wears me out just thinking about it. Uh, these choices are motivated by our desires, and our desires, as Luis Menard writes in The New Yorker, are shaped by a myriad of factors. So this is unbelievers talking about why we make these choices. Some combination of inputs, including but not limited to, re uh, limited to reasons, hunches, bodily needs, past experiences, unconscious desires, social pressures, mystic cords of memory, price point behind every preference. They are weighted differently in almost every case, and they are highly malleable. Proverbs 4.23 that we have kind of been talking about, we're going to be looking at that in depth, so if you want to turn there, that could be helpful. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Right, so it says, Guard your heart with all vigilance. In the biblical Hebrew, guard and vigilant are both military terms. So the idea is maybe a sentry on a walled city guarding the entry to that city, protecting what comes in or, you know, guarding what comes in and what goes out. Do it with all vigilance. Um, again, that's a military term. Craig Troxell, in one of those books we gave away, uh, With All Your Heart, he says, keeping here, some translations would say keep your heart. Uh, my translation says guard your heart. But keeping, he says keeping means preserving and protecting, looking inward and outward, ensuring soundness and safety. Keeping the heart demands both. The heart is like a musical instrument that quickly falls out of tune. It needs to be tuned every time you want it to perform properly. Right, so guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. It's saying that what we allow our heart to love is going to dictate how we live our life. We live our lives from our heart. Jesus taught this in Matthew 15, 18. Let's just, at least I'll read it to you. Matthew 15, 18, talking to the Pharisees. He said, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Something similar in Mark 7, 21. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Verse 21 of Mark 7, For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Um, you know, Jesus was one saturated with the Scriptures, and in those passages, I think he was simply... Uh, regurgitating and applying to his situation and discussion with the Pharisees, Proverbs 4.23, which is taught in, in numerous places throughout the Old Testament in a variety of different ways. But I think Proverbs 4.23 is kind of the most concise idea of that. Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Okay, we talked about what guard means, but, but what does it mean when we're talking about your heart? Um, that's what we're going to be talking about. What does the Bible mean when it says heart? You know, the world, when it talks about heart, it's talking most predominantly about compassion or the feelings, you know, feelings and the emotion of love, right? So we even do little loves everywhere, and that's the heart. That's what the world typically thinks of. When I was growing up, there was this popular song, 
you know, and in my mind, I'm like still 18, right, and 20. So I was teaching this at our church there in, in Kentucky, and I'm the old man there. And, you know, so I'm teaching this. I was like, well, you guys all know that the rock sets, right? And they put that popular song out, Listen to Your Heart. And they just, like, looked at me and listened, blank stare. I'm like, the 80s weren't that long ago. They're like, jail is like 40 years ago. <laughs> but anyways, the rock sets, Listen to Your Heart. You know, it's a love song, you know, and that's, you know, bad, bad relational advice, but it's got a catchy tune. But it's really talking about feelings and desires. You know, listen to your heart. What do you want to do? And that's what the world thinks of when it thinks of heart. You know, what do you want? Let, you know, follow your heart. Follow what you want to do. Well, I mean, that's partly biblical. Um, but Craig Troxell, again, gives a good summary definition. I want to use that. He says, you know, the heart, the biblical heart, is the governing center of a person. When used simply, it reflects the unity of our inner being. And when used comprehensively, it describes the complexity of our inner being. As composed of mind, what we know, desires, what we love, and will, what we choose. I think when we look at the biblical evidence, uh, we see uh, these categories. Now, the biblical heart is more complex than what I'm going to present to you. But I think what I'm going to present to you is a helpful way of understanding the gist of the biblical heart. And there's nuances, you know, in, in different various ways. But it's at least these categories. Thinking and believing. And I'm going to do proof texts on each one of these to prove it to you. Uh, so Psalm 14, yeah. Psalm 14, one, uh, the, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Okay, so the fool is speaking in his heart. He's thinking, right, at a minimum if, he, if he's speaking. Uh, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So the Bible attributes one of the functions of the biblical heart as believing. You believe. Belief, believing is a function of the biblical heart. Uh, we also have desires in the biblical heart. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Proverbs 19.21. And these should be in your notes, kind of on the side of that little heart chart. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So in biblical Hebrew, uh, the word that is translated there as plan is this word lev, and it's the word in so many other places in the Old Testament translated as heart. Lev is heart. Here it says uh, mind. Many are the plans in the mind. So mind and heart are synonymous sometimes in the Old Testament, right? So you plan in your mind, so you, you set your goals and you commit to things in your biblical heart. You desire in your biblical heart, you, you also plan. Uh, Ezra 7.10, I love this text, so inspiring. Uh, the good hand of God was on Ezra, why? Verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So will, uh, uh, human will, desire, but also kind of things that he's committed to. I like to talk about commitments rather than will. Seems like it helps people understand it better. But, you know, your goals in life. He made it his goal in life to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So we got thinking, believing, desires and commitments, will, uh, goals, and then we have emotions and attitudes. Colossians 2.2, 2, uh, Paul says that their hearts may be encouraged. You can be encouraged in your heart. Uh, 
Proverbs 23:15 says, "My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad." So you can be glad in your heart. That's an emotion. We could say an attitude. And then what Christ said, it's an action. Uh, you do the things you do because it's what's going in your heart, flows out of your heart, so it's action. Um, so all of that is the, is, is the biblical heart. Uh, can you go to the heart chart, Jojo? I think it's one of these slides. There, let's see if this works. Nope, disappears on the screen. Okay, so... Let me just explain this. It's, it's in your uh, notes there, so go ahead and look at it. And we can, I'll, I'll kind of show you sort of what's going on. So the top there, that's heat. That's a, the heat of life. That's the circumstance. And the arrows go this way because typically that's the way things work. We have this line going across. That's the inner man. I taught this briefly last year, so it's a, a review, but we'll get into it more. Uh, the inner man is the roots. The outer man um, I'm treating the outer man not just as physical things, but actually things that you do, right? So you can punch somebody. That's going to be an outer man kind of situation. So here to the right, you got thinking, believing, those proof texts, then you have desires and commitments, and then you got your emotions. So what it's saying is that's a tree there. Those are roots. It's saying that based on the things that we think and believe, based on the things that we desire, that we want, and that we're committed to, our goals in life, from those things, we're going to live our life. Fruit is going to be on our tree based on those things. These mainly thinking and believing desires and commitments. Everybody got that? So, and, and it, so it flows this way is typically your thinking and your believing informs your desires, but some ways it goes, sometimes it goes the other way. Sometimes we want something and that informs our beliefs. But when we're talking about beliefs, we're talking about not just things we confess. We believe God is sovereign. That's great, but, and, and that God loves me. But then when, you know, someone steals my candy bar, am I happy about it? Well, if I believe God is sovereign, does everything for my good, I'm going to at least be joyful, right? So we're talking about true beliefs and true desires, and it typically flows, you know, kind of this direction. So when we're counseling, we're talking about, you know, okay, here's your circumstance, what were you thinking? What were you believing? What were your desires? What were your commitments? And then how did you respond? If you had been thinking these things and believing these things and wanting these things and committed to these things, then what would have the fruit been on your tree? Well, it would have been trust. It would have been, you know, joy. It would have been loving my wife, so on and so forth. Now, remember we've talked about the, the goal of biblical counseling. The goal of biblical counseling compared to other counseling models is to bring God glory specifically by becoming like Christ. So yeah, Romans 8, 28 and 29, uh, God does all things for good. He's conforming that heart to make it like Jesus Christ, right? He's conforming the heart, the thinking and believing, the desires and the commitments. So now let's go back to Proverbs 4, 23, just briefly, and we could translate it this way, keep guard your heart with all, or keep Guard your thinking and your believing, your desires and your goals in life, because from those, you're going to live your life, right? Guard your thinking. Guard your beliefs, the things you truly believe. Guard the things that you truly want. Guard the goals you set for yourself in life, because you're going to live your life based on those things. Well, uh, 
Biblical counseling requires a heart change. It requires, uh, right, salvation, a change in thinking, believing, desires, and commitments. And at the moment of salvation, we're given new hearts, and so we're given a new capacity to think, believe, desire, and want. Um, the problem with the heart, though, as we mentioned yesterday, was it's desperately sick, Jeremiah 79. Who can understand it? But the good news we see in Ezekiel 36. Let's look at Ezekiel 36. Promise of the new covenant. God says in verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Regeneration, a new heart. That's what regeneration means. A new capacity to think true things, believe true things, desire true things, and pursue right goals. Um, before we're given a new heart, um, we were not able not to sin. After we've been given a new heart, now we're able not to sin. But we need a new heart. So when I'm working with somebody, I want to make sure that they're a true believer, that they understand the gospel, that they're hearing the gospel. If they're an unbeliever, I want them to, to be saved. I'll still teach them true things from the scriptures, but they're not going to have a capacity to actually desire what God would want them to desire. They're not going to have a capacity to actually set goals for themselves in life that actually please the Lord. So I'm always working towards that as I'm teaching them biblical principles of marriage that they could apply to their, their marriage or biblical principles of communication that would really help them. But they're not going to truly be able to change and truly be able to please the Lord, right? So they're not going to be able to do what they were created for unless they come to know Jesus. So they need a new heart. That's why we got to share the gospel, teach the gospel, and apply the gospel when we counsel. When the heart is right, though, then our actions are going to follow and the actions will just naturally take place. So we care about behavior. Uh, we want them to obey, but we want them to obey with the right heart. So we talk about don't fruit picks, but root picks. To illustrate this, let's all turn to Matthew 6.25, if you would like. Did I say 25? Matthew 6, 25. Okay, and we're going to read down through verse 34. And when we do this, I want you to be thinking about what the text says about anxiety, and I want you to be thinking about whether anxiety is a good thing or a bad thing. Okay, so here we go. Everybody got it? I'm glad some of you are old school because I hear pages flipping. All these young people with their, their Bible on their phone. You never know when they're done. You know, it's like it used to be when all the pages got done flipping, you could then, okay, let's start. Now it's like, okay, just raise your hand when you get it. Thank you. Okay, so Matthew 6, 25. Let's read it. Thinking about what I just asked. Uh, what does the text say about anxiety, whether it is good or bad? Christ says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, neither, and they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so closes, clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Okay. Is anxiety a good thing or a bad thing? Raise your hand if you think it's a bad thing. Okay, pretty much everybody, good. We'll just go with that. Typically, that's what people are thinking. And they've struggled with anxiety for a long time. And so when they come to this you know, tree here and the roots, let's just say the fruit on that tree is a bad fruit, right? Shriveled up and it's bad and that's anxiety. What they do is they just kind of X out that anxiety. Or they play whack-a-mole. You played whack-a-mole at the fair, you know, it's that little kind of machine, these little moles pop up and you have this hammer and as soon as they come up, you hit it. And if you hit it, you get so many points and then another one pops up somewhere else and you're just kind of, you know, going like that. Well, they're doing whack-a-mole with, with their sins and, and with, with anxiety. They see anxiety as an issue and when it, when it rears its ugly head, they read this verse, memorize this verse and go, anxiety bad. Lord, forgive me of, of that anxiety. And so they're just picking that bad fruit off the, off the tree, but they're never dealing with the roots. They're never actually trying to think about, you know, why is that anxiety coming? Where's it coming from? Uh, what, what things am I thinking? What am I desiring? What am I wanting? What are my goals in life? Right? They don't, they don't understand that. And, and really, emotions, anxiety, anxiety is not a sin in, of, in and of itself. If your child runs out here in the street and a Mack truck comes running and you are anxious and you run out there and get them, was that anxiety sin? Should you repent to the Lord for being anxious because your kid just about got ran over? No, it was functioning properly. It moved you to go and do that. So our emotions typically act like caution lights on the dashboard of our cars or in our cockpits, letting us know something wrong is going underneath the hood, right? Or, or a situation. So now let's go back and let's read Matthew 6.25 and let's focus on what it says about true worship and desires and things that we should be believing and thinking. Maybe we won't read all of it, but we'll just look at some of it. You know, verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Right? So the anxiety that he's addressing particularly comes with uh, their, their need for food, clothing, and shelter. And he's saying, don't be anxious about that. Trust your heavenly father to provide. Why? Because of the character of your heavenly father. You should be thinking true things about who your heavenly father is. You are more value than a bird to your heavenly father, right? So they need to be believing that, thinking that. Um, he says, in verse 33, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? All right, the Gentiles, here meaning pagans, those who don't know God. Uh, for the pagans, people who don't know God, they seek after all these things. Seek there, I think, is a worship word. They are striving. They are striving for all these things, food, clothing, and shelter. That's what is consuming everything on their hard drive. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them all, but you, because your heavenly Father already needs these things and is going to provide them for them, for you, you seek, you strive after first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added to you. He doesn't want us striving after these things that he's going to give us because he's a faithful father. He wants us striving after these things. It's a worship text. And my anxiety is coming because I'm not believing true things about who God is, and my focus is off. It's focused on the things of this world, not on the things above. Now, the biblical root is what we need to get at. That's what is producing that bad fruit on, on the tree. It's harder to discern that sometimes, but that's where we need to be looking and where we need to be thinking, but it's more effective. And we want to put off and we want to put on at the root level. So in anxiety, I don't want to just say, oh, anxiety is sin. Here's a text, you know, Philippians 4, 4 6, and, and around there. Do not be anxious about anything. I mean, that's true, right? But people are anxious and they're not understanding why they're anxious. Well, they're anxious because they have a wrong heart desire or they want the wrong things. If I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30, and now I'm 29 and my birthday is in, in, in a couple weeks and I'm not a millionaire. I'm going to be a nervous wreck and I'm going to be anxious. Why? Because I wanted this thing that actually God didn't even want for me. And that's what I need to repent of. I need to repent of having the wrong goal. I don't need to repent of being anxious. See what I'm getting at? Guard your heart. Guard what you set your affections on. Guard your goals in life. Because from those things flow the springs of life. Now, when we talk about this, we need to kind of talk about things that are categorically sinful versus things that are categorically righteous, but then go to a sinful degree. Uh, some activities or heart postures are inherently sinful. The others become sinful only when they rise to a sinful level. Uh, something, you know, an example of something that's categorically sinful would be pornography. It's always wrong every time to look at pornography. It's categorically sinful. Something that's not categorically sinful that can rise to a sinful degree would be something like respect. You got parents, uh, Ephesians 6, 1 says, children will obey their parents in the Lord. They're to respect and honor their parents, right? So respect is something good from, from, from kids. But it rises to a sinful degree when the parents demand that their children respect them. And when they don't get it, they're willing to sin in order to get it. That's something that's not categorically sinful, but it's risen to a wrong degree. <clears throat> James 4, 1 through 3 says, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covenant and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. My shorthand for that is, what is it that you want that you're not getting that you're willing to sin in order to get? Whatever that is, it's a sinful passion. It's either categorically sinful or it has risen to a sinful level. Now, when we get to the reason, this is where I get excited in biblical counseling because a lot of times people have never heard this. But it's easier said than done. Uh, just think about your beliefs. And I'm talking true beliefs, not what you have as your confessional theology, but your actual praxology. If I told you in 30 seconds a bomb is going to come right through this, the ceiling of this building and explode and obliterate everything in this building. But if you get outside the building, you're going to be safe. I tell you that. If you believe that, what are you going to do? You're going to be out in 30 seconds. But nobody's moving, so nobody believes me. <laughs> How do we change what we truly believe? How could I convince you 
to believe me. It would take some work to get you all to run out of the building in 30 seconds. Um, Obviously, we need the Holy Spirit to change what we truly believe. We need God's word. We need the means of grace to tell us what truth is, but we need the Holy Spirit to truly believe that, uh, to bank on the promises of God. You know, God's sovereignty is, is the one that comes to my mind. Uh, it's easy to give it lip service, but then when I ne- really need to trust it, when the wife uh, needs to submit to her husband, even though he's making an unwise decision, and she needs to trust the Lord that the husband that he gave her is the one that he has for her, and that nothing, you know, apart, you know, no purpose of the Lord's can be thwarted, and that he is meticulously sovereign over everything, no, that's a little bit harder of a situation, right? So it's not easy. Uh, how about changing your desires? Uh, let me just pick on you. What's your favorite desire? Or not, not your favorite desire. What is your favorite ice cream? Sorry. <laughs> what, is, what is your favorite ice cream? Yeah, she's all sweating there. <laughs> What's your favorite ice cream? Uh, cookies and cream. Okay. Um, got bad news for you. I read 2 Samson, and 2 Samson 2.16 declares that cookies and cream is actually Satan's flavor, and vanilla is actually the Lord's flavor. Okay, now you and I both go down here to the ice cream shop, like right now, and I put the two choices in front of you. Which one do you truly want? Which one do you salivate for? I put out vanilla, I put out cookies and cream. Which one do you want? I just told you, say it's flavor. What is wrong with you? <laughs> you see, on one level, you know, she, she has the belief, the conviction maybe, or the, the understanding intellectually that the scriptures are true and the scriptures say that she should want vanilla. But what she truly wants, what she desires in her heart is cookies and cream. How do those desires change? That's what we're trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do in biblical counseling is help them to want what God wants and to love what God loves. And that's the work of the Spirit, but he does use means. You see, the heart is the real you. It's easy to admit that an outburst of anger was wrong. Hey, forgive me, I was upset, and I kind of raised my voice. Forgive me of that. That's kind of easy. Harder to admit that you worship pleasure. And when your pleasure was interrupted by your kids, you just lost it because you worship pleasure, and you value that over treating them kindly to the glory of God. That's easier to admit, but that is really the issue. The issue isn't that you got angry. The issue is that you're worshiping pleasure in that moment, right? That's the issue. The heart reveals the blackness of the soul. Hallelujah for repentance. And ultimately, as I've been saying throughout, this is the Spirit's business, but the Spirit uses means, and so we avail ourselves of those means, namely Scripture, prayer, and fellowship. And as we've been saying, that counseling is fellowship. A brother coming alongside another brother and encouraging them and admonishing them. Uh, we can be patient with ourselves here as, we're, as God is changing our desires. Who in this room has been a believer for 20 years or more? Okay? Think back to the things that you wanted, your desires in life and your goals in life 20 years ago. Are they drastically different now than they were 20 years ago? Raise your hand if that's, that's the case. Almost everybody, right? Because God has been faithful to change you. He's changed your desires. Romans 2.4 says that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads men to repentance. 
And so we need to remind ourselves of that reality and we need to remind our counselees about that reality when we're going, man, these desires just, I still want cookies. I still want cookies and cream. You know, I don't eat cookies and cream, but I go to the ice cream shop and I'm salivating for cookies and cream. I take vanilla, you know, but I don't know that I really want vanilla over cookies and cream. But guess what? Over time, using the means of grace, reading God's word over and over, and the spirit using that word that says God's, you know, trust God, his favorite flavor is vanilla. It's so good. And then being around other believers who are saying like, have you tasted this new vanilla? It's just awesome. Here, try some. You know, and then praying, Lord, help me to want vanilla. God's going to slowly change your desires. And one day you're going to wake up and be like, wow, I mean, I hate cookies and cream. I can't believe I ever liked that. If you've been a believer long enough, you know that God has been faithful to do that. Biblical counseling, we're just trying to be used by the Lord, hopefully, used by the Spirit to, to move that process along a little bit quicker. Um, and there's hope here. This is what I get excited about. This is a true story. I had a young man, 25 years old, struggling with some OCD-like behaviors, some perfectionist behaviors, and really he wanted something so bad. Actually, what he wanted was he wanted to be a missionary. And he was having some physical ailments, but because he wanted this so bad, anytime he got a cold, Anytime he, anything was wrong with him, anytime he had blood work that came back and wasn't perfect, or he heard about someone in his family who had some disease, he just, he had panic attacks. Came undone, was over the heart, anxious. <clears throat> had just been, you know, he, he's a lover of the Lord, reads his Bible every day, memorizing scripture, just a faithful brother, just awesome kid. And, uh, but he had been playing whack-a-mole with anxiety. He knew anxiety was bad, he knew it was sin, and he kept, Telling the Lord, Lord, please forgive me of that anxiety and that worry. I know I'm not supposed to do that. And the Lord, through his reading and prayer, you know, I think was going to change him. But literally one session, I explained this to him. That was it. One meeting. He came, he went home, he came back, and he's like, that is amazing. That just, that just shook my world. Not that he never got anxious and was tempted when, when physical uh, ailments came along, but it only lasted like, 30 minutes, five minutes, you know, five minutes, 30 seconds. He had a way to kind of understand it. He was like, oh, I know. I want the wrong things right now. I'm not trusting the Lord. There's things going on in my heart. I'm wanting the wrong things. I'm not believing true things about who God is. And, and so it was shorter. Instead of being six days or seven days, and instead of like snowballing into a panic attack, and now he wants to be a biblical counselor. Uh, exciting. So I really love this because I think it's things that people in the regular church haven't heard and they don't quite understand and don't know how to apply it. Okay, so let's go back to Sally. She's that 35-year-old struggling with anxiety. She's been on meds, tried all different kinds of health foods to no avail. She's losing hope that she can actually change. After getting all her history and listening to her problem, I started teaching on the biblical heart like I just did with you all. And I teach on the heart the first session, typically, because I want her to keep a journal, an anxiety journal, we'll call it, if, that, if anxiety is the issue. If it is a lust issue, then I'll have them keep a lust journal or whatever the issue might be. Relationally, if it's husband and wife, I'll have them keep a conflict journal. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go around this heart chart, and I'm going to have them on a journal describe the circumstance. That's number one. Um, we were... We were... Uh, loading up the car, getting ready for a trip. Right? Everything was hectic. Nobody had any sleep. That's what the circumstance was. 
then I'm going to have them kind of fill out their response over here to the right. What was their response to that situation? Okay, so the situation was they're getting the car ready for a trip. Uh, nobody has any sleep. Everything's hectic. And one person gets grouchy with another person and says, well, you know, whatever, right? Um, and then you responded with anger. So you would just say, I responded with anger, get specific, you know, I kicked the dog. So that's, you know, so the situation was what I just described. My response was, I kicked the dog. That's all I want them to do for that. And then I want them to go back and go, okay, you know, can you remember, can you think about what things were going through your mind? Not what you should have been thinking, but just raw, but, you know, put it down on paper for me. Um, I was thinking that that person's a jerk. I was thinking that I hate road trips. I was thinking, you know, whatever, right? And then go, what were you believing? You know, I asked them, what were you believing about God? What were you believing about yourself? What were you believing about, you know, anything? What, what things were you believing? Well, I was believing that, that things should always run smoothly, right? Or, and then I'll say, okay, then what were you desiring? I wanted peace. I wanted comfort. I wanted everyone to love each other. And then, you know, what were you committed to in life? I was committed to my life going so smooth that there would never be anyone that would ever raise their voice to me ever again. Uh, we laugh, but people actually live their life based on those kinds of crazy sort of commitments. They're committed to that. And when it doesn't happen, they're just devastated. Well, those are all kind of unrealistic. So I'm going to teach her on the heart because I, I want her to do that journal. Craig Troxell again says, if you want to know what someone's heart is thinking, desiring, or deciding, then listen to her words. People will eventually tell you, even if they don't hear it themselves. And that's what I'm trying to get to in that journal. And then I'll have them go around again and say what you should have been thinking and believing, desiring, and, and committed to. And then if you were doing those things, if you're believing true things about God and yourself, if you were thinking right things, you know, like, well, it's just a blessing, you know, to be with the family, whatever. If your goals in life are accurate according to Scripture, then what would your response naturally have been? Well, I would have been patient. I would have been loving the people in my life at that point or whatever. Other homework I would give him would be an article and a lecture maybe that would reinforce what I just taught. So I have a lecture from Stuart Scott who teaches this in a, in a way I think more effective than me. So I'll have them listen to that during, in between our next session. I'll have them also read Ed Welch's uh, pamphlet on motives. I have it in article form, so I'll email it to him. It's just going to reiterate it. So it gives them something in case I went too fast. They can go ahead and then just read it and highlight things, and then we'll talk about it when we get back. They can listen to that lecture over and over again, and so they're just getting saturated with the principles of the biblical heart that I just talked about. Next session, we get together. We start off by reviewing her journal after we pray and so forth. Here's what we discovered. Sally was a pastor's wife. Relational turmoil within the church disabled her. Whenever her husband got sideways with someone from the church, she couldn't sleep. She started worrying about his job security. She cared too much about what people were thinking of her. She needed to focus on pleasing Christ, not on pleasing people, on being faithful and leaving the results up to the Lord. Proverbs 21, 31. You prepare the horse for battle, the Lord determines the victory. So we ended up teaching her about fearing God and not people. And as she does this, to trust God then is going to be the outcome, to find her joy in pleasing God. That's where her hope is. She had some misplaced joy. She was thinking that her joy was in the people in the church loving her and loving her husband. So rather than doing a word study on anxiety and having 
rather than having her memorize a verse on anxiety, we started studying passages that, you know, we called her repentance on the fear of the Lord and, and started studying passages that taught what the fear of the Lord is and the dangers of the fear of man and, and encouraged her to grow in trusting the Lord with her life and not fearing people, trusting that God is sovereign over people. The king's heart, or yeah, the king's heart is in the Lord's hand and he turns it wherever he will, right? She can trust the Lord. And God can give her husband a favorable disposition in the congregation. Uh, the experience of anxiety simply highlighted a deeper heart problem. And like I said, emotions are often this way. They act like caution lights on the dashboard telling us that something wrong is, is going on underneath the hood. And so we helped her put off and put on at the heart level, but also at the fruit level, both of those. Uh, encouraged her to repent at the heart level, at the level of her thoughts, her beliefs, her desires, and her goals. And the result of that is a deeper turning. And it really exposes the blackness that is you and is me, and it actually glorifies the gospel. It's not our performance that saves us, right? So we repent. Um, True dying to self happens here. Uh, I think this is what Jesus talked about, 1624. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We can rearrange the chairs on the Titanic. We can make somebody who has outbursts of anger stop having out, have outbursts of anger because of some other worldly motive. It's just not socially profitable for that person. So by sheer self-control, people can learn not to do that. They can keep it in and then go later, hit a punching bag. Or like some secular counselors would, would say, go buy a box of china at the thrift store, go to a metal dumpster and then throw them in there and just smash them and boy, doesn't that feel good. Better to take your anger out on the, on the dumpster than to take your anger out on a person. Socially, yeah, that is right. But has their heart really changed? Why they're angry, why they want to throw things in the first place, that hasn't even changed. We've only rearranged the chairs on the Titanic. But to start messing with people's desires, now they're starting to die, die to self. To start messing with their goals in life, what they are living for, to be financially independent and a millionaire by the time they're 30. If you come alongside and say, you know, that's actually not what God would have for you. It may be, maybe it is. Maybe it would happen, but that's not the thing that you're supposed to be straining towards. You're restraining towards bringing God glory with your life. Start messing with people's goals in life. Now we're getting somewhere. So I'll note what things need to be put off and put on with regards to the heart chart. After three or four sessions with her, you know, I've gathered some data from going over the journal each session, and I've started to see some trends, some common trends in, in their thinking. Maybe they're just very pessimistic in their thinking. Oh, this is, we're gonna, this is gonna happen again, right, in relationships. Oh, here we go again. This is gonna turn into, you know, well, that's defeatist. That's not hopeful. That's not looking at your spouse through the lens of the gospel. Those are wrong things to be thinking. Put those off. Philippians 4.8, whatever's true, whatever's lovely, think on these things. And so if that's reoccurring, then I'm gonna help them grow in thinking true things. On the level of desires, uh, the same sort of things, looking for trends. Well, you know, fear of man kept popping up on their journals. I'm like, okay, let's go ahead and let's just study now uh, what the fear of man is. Do you think that that's an issue? Like, yeah, that's totally an issue. All right, well, we need to put off the fear of man, repent of that, and put on fearing the Lord, caring more about what God thinks of you 
than what people think of you. Right? That's the definition of what it means to fear the Lord. Care more about what God thinks of you than what people think of you. And so then we're going to change and kind of craft our, our homeworks based on what I find as trends in that heart journal. So this is when we were doing the eight eyes and we came to interpretation. This is interpretation. I'm taking all the data, all the things I heard from the personal data inventory, the problem checklist that is included in there, and then these journals that I've been having them do over several weeks. And I'm kind of looking at it going, oh, these are the trends. And I draw in my little notes a tree with some roots and then a heart at the bottom and then plus on one side, negative on another side. And as I'm listening to them share their heart journals and hearing them talk, I just write down there, you know, things that they need to put off on the heart level, you know, this kind of thinking. Or, you know, well, that's actually fear man. Or the things that they're believing. Well, they're not believing anything about God when they get in these arguments. They're not thinking anything. Or wrong things about mankind, about who they are. The fetus thinking. Well, what does the Bible say? What are the promises? Well, they need to trust God. They're not trusting God. And then what should they put on, right? And so then after three or four sessions, I've got all these little pluses and minuses below my, my tree, fruit, and root that I can take a quick look at and go, oh, these are the trends. This is what we need to work on eventually, right? So that's how I use that for interpretation. I want to identify at least two attributes of God that would be most helpful for this particular person sitting in front of me to meditate on and to study and to dwell on. They would be different for somebody else. You know, maybe this person needs to dwell on God's love. Maybe this person needs to dwell on God's omniscience or his wisdom or his power. You know, get A.W. Pink's little book on the attributes of God and have them study whatever chapter uh, that you need them to study. I want to identify two or three ruling desires in their heart that are competing with their worship for Jesus Christ. Uh, I think every person has two or three of those. And not that they can't get over them, but they might be things that they just typically kind of struggle with and it'll be a little bit harder for them so that they can kind of be equipped and be ready to battle it. For me, it's, it's peace and comfort. I want things to go smooth. I'm a schedule guy. I like things to go smooth. When my schedule doesn't go smooth, you know, it's like, you know, maybe I'm not as patient. Maybe I'm irritable. Those sort of things. And so it's helpful, you know, if someone meets with me, I feel like I have served them well if I have identified a few attributes of God that they could meditate and dwell on throughout their life and a few heart idols that would be a few, a few competing heart desires that would be most helpful for them to learn how to battle. Like, okay, maybe it's the fear of man. Well, Maybe I have them read Lou Priolo's book, Pleasing People. And then we study certain scriptures that come up from that, right? Help them understand that. If I have done that for them, I feel like I have served them well. And then, the, and then you know, as they are growing and the issues that the presenting problem came in, it's no longer debilitating for them. And the regular ministries of the church, their own devotions, and now their understanding of the heart has served them well. Now they can kind of go on their own way and study these things and we're good to go. Promises that they need to believe, so on and so forth. So Sally, Sam, Tom, and Susan, the ones that I kind of highlighted earlier, they all had the same heart problem. It was fear, man, and people-pleasing. They just manifested things differently. Sally, we just talked about uh, how uh, she just had this debilitating anxiety. Sam, it was depression. 
when people didn't include him or make much of him as he thought that they should, he became depressed. Completely different uh, fruit, but same heart root. Tom, it was anger. When someone made him look bad in the eyes of others, he just lost it, got extremely angry. Susan, with her OCD-like symptoms, she learned that her pursuit of excellence as a teenager earned her the praise of men. And so then when she got to master's level school in a hard school, got married, had all, and, and, and then got a job and had all these other things going on, she couldn't keep the plate spinning. She couldn't achieve perfect, perfection in school, and it devastated her. And so it forced her you know, to work towards perfection, and then she just had to have everything perfect, and it was just life-dominating. She couldn't do anything else. What do they all have in common? They all had the same desire of pleasing people. Misplaced joy, thinking that their joy was actually in other people making much of them. They, are, they all cared more about what people thought of them than what God thought of them. They all had a sincere desire to change. They were all reading the word regularly, but because they were fruit picking instead of root fixing, they kept going after the wrong problems. The problem wasn't the emotion of anger or anxiety, but the heart, the root that was causing that emotion or that action. So the heart matters. This is why we don't fruit pick, but root fix.